my spiritual awakening was that, again, it was up to me to decide if I was really honestly committed to this for the rest of my life. And that's when I first became spiritually aware that I had in my hands the ability to make this work. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, O. On today's episode of the Share Podcast, we have Jeff Shane joining us. Jeff, now four and a half years clean, takes us through four decades of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Today, Jeff is retired and spends every day doing service and helping others. It's an amazing story of hope and an incredible journey of recovery. Join us now. But first, a message from our sponsor. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.SoberNation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. And if you're looking for more than just one recovery-related podcast, I've got two for you. The Recovery Elevator and That Sober Guy. On Mondays, you have Paul Churchill with the Recovery Elevator podcast. On Tuesdays, you have me, O, with the Share podcast. And on Fridays, you have Shane Raymer with the That Sober Guy podcast. Tune in every week and add us to your recovery portfolio. HP, baby. And after this interview... If you enjoyed listening to the Share Podcast, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. This will ensure we get ranked well on these networks, and that means more people will easily find the Share Podcast. This is the best way to show your support and help us grow. You can also find the Share Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube. Go to any one of your favorite social networks, and the Share Podcast will come right up. And finally, if you would like to make a donation to the Share Podcast, you can do so using PayPal. On the top right corner of the website, you'll see a donate button. Just click on it, and this will take you to the page where you can make your donation. Thanks again for helping the Share Podcast become a huge success. Now back to the show. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. Hey, oh, great to be with you. Excellent. I'm excited to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? You know, life is good. Life <laughs> is really good. Probably the best it's ever been. It certainly is. Excellent. So you ready to get started? Let's rock and roll. Let's do this. All right. So folks, today we have a special guest. We have Jeff Shane. Jeff started in the mailroom at CBS Records and ultimately worked his way up to vice president at Capitol Records as a rock promoter. Today, we're going to just dive right in and we're going to hear his story. So Jeff, tell us about how your life is today. Give us a rundown of what you do on a regular basis, your daily routine, including recovery. You know, I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I go to a 7.30 meeting almost every day except for Saturday when I go to a men's meeting at 8 o'clock. So after my meeting, I work with my clients. I have clients that have disabilities. I have one person that lives independently that has autism and the other one has cerebral palsy. I go to school, I'm getting a drug and alcohol counseling degree. I go to the jails, the hospital, 
Five East, which is the Psychiatric Detox and the Salvation Army. I work at the Boys and Girls Club. I volunteer at my grandkids' school. I teach kindergarten. This is my fourth year math, and I teach fourth grade. We do books. We read books and book report. I also work at the Boys and Girls Club, and I'm looking to get interested in educating parents, not only the kids, because everything happens at such a young age, but I'm noticing through education, which is probably the only thing that's ever going to teach people about drug and alcohol addiction, that we also need to educate the parents because the parents don't know what's going on. The parents have never come across a situation of a 12 or 13-year-old child uh, using drugs and alcohol. So we're concentrating so much on the child, we forget that the parent is really basically ignorant to this whole situation. Wow. Man, so your whole life right now is dedicated to service. Yeah, you know, I'm up in my years. I'm very healthy and happy, and I'm 68. And I've pretty much done everything I wanted to do, <laughs> bad or good in my life. And I don't know, you know, I live here in, in paradise in Santa Barbara, and I've just been continually getting guided in a direction that instead of having to make a little extra money to help with the knowledge that I've acquired in all the travels that I've been with all the different people I've met, and give it back to other people and maybe give them an opportunity to have a little hope. I love it, man. Listeners, I met Jeff in Santa Barbara. I was visiting my family that live in California, and that's exactly where I met Jeff. I met Jeff at a 7.30 meeting in Santa Barbara, and you know we connected there. We talked a little bit after the meeting, and I'm like, Jeff, you got to get on the show. He said, I'd love to. So here we are right now with the power of making meetings and growing that recovery network. It's the best thing and the most powerful thing you can do for yourself. So I'm very excited to have you on the show today, Jeff. Thank you. It's really an honor. Excellent. So how much clean time do you have and when is your anniversary date? My anniversary date is March 27th and I'm going into my fifth year. Awesome. So I'm a little over four and a half years. I love it. And how old were you the first time you drank or used drugs? And more importantly, how did they make you feel? You know, I think I was 16 years old and I went to a high school fraternity party and with drugs were in my day. So they weren't adventures yet. We're talking about 63, maybe. And we had a party at someone's house and they made rum and cokes in a kind of like a coconut shell. They wallowed it out. And I noticed that I drank and I didn't taste anything. So I just was kidding around as the party went and just kept drinking. And oh, it was funny. I got absolutely toast. And it was the first time my father ever allowed me to use the car. So I certainly couldn't go home smelling drunk. So I wound up mopping the floor as a mop because I couldn't get up. And I wound up taking a cold shower during it. That's what I remember. And knowing I had to get home by a certain time, thinking, God, I got to come down from this shit. So, you know, I can't really tell you how I felt. I mean, I went from never having a drink to being totally uh, blackout, literally. <laughs> I didn't have time to feel the high. I just went from drinking to passing out. I love it. All right. Well, you're warmed up, Jeff. So I'm turning this show over to you, buddy. It's uh -huh. time for you to share your story, the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life. When you hit rock bottom... And finally, your journey into recovery up until today. So, Jeff, tell us your story. 
I got introduced in drugs in 1966 when I was an horrific athlete and I played sports in fear of my dad and I never reached my potential. And I really could have gone to college and who knows. So I happened to go, a bunch of us made up our mind. We were going to go out to California from Miami Beach and I was going to get a motorcycle. And when I got here to California my first time, I worked for Dick Clark on two TV shows, Where the Action is American Bandstand, basically being the gopher and loved the hell out of it. The show got canceled. I moved back to Miami Beach and then all the world broke loose. I mean, I didn't know I was going up, down, in between, round and down, you know, take a pill, don't take a pill, trip, mescaline, peyote, THC. You know, everything was an experiment because drugs were so new to the world. 66 was when they first recognized the drug problem from Vietnam. Right. So I was basically a human sampler. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I tried to go to college. I got messed up from the time I got to college to the time I left. So, I mean, you know, it was all or nothing. Drugs was an immediate lifestyle and identification as a hippie for me. I actually tried to commit suicide and almost made it. And I guess I, you know, it was so crazy that because it was a suicide, I got high in the psychiatric ward. I saved the sleeping pills. I got out as soon as I got out, I got high. So, you know, nothing mattered. And for me, it was because I had to go to Vietnam and I didn't want to go. And I ran into the same corpsman a year later after my first time. And he insinuated that my religion was um, not for him and just passed me. And I went nuts. And I, I don't know what I was doing. You know, I was so far gone into drugs. So I went away to Gainesville, Florida, managed my sister's band, you know, again, I did well in school, but just massive amounts of tripping and alcohol, and no alcohol for me, tripping and any kind of drug I get my hands on. Eventually got married, moved to Sarasota, Florida, had a child, uh, was working for my father-in-law, built a country club, and one day in a hole, I knew I was not a construction worker. <laughs> so I tried to get a job in the music business, and my friend worked for CBS Records, and it took me about a year of driving him nuts. And I eventually got a job in the mailroom in Atlanta, and I loved it. I knew nothing about the industry, but there was only one or two things that were going to happen to me. I was either going to go up or I was going to go out. You can't go in the basement from the mailroom. <laughs> you know, that's it, bro. There's nothing to do. So I really levitated to the fact that I could use my mouth, and I worked real hard for about nine months in Atlanta, and I wound up doing merchandising in retail stores and inventory and warehouses when we counted things, you know, literally physically counted things on an inventory. And I got a job in Miami doing radio promotion. I knew nothing about it, which later is you take the new music to radio or your stars to radio and you try and convince radio station, whatever format fits that artist, that they should play your record. Now, do you have tools? Sure. When you work for a major record company, you have other artists and monies that you can give a radio station in order for them to play your music. Right. I excelled. The problem with that job was that, you know, I was always told, don't tell me how you do your job, just do it. So basically it was a license to get totaled. So I was totaled all the time, but I had the ability to do my job, take art. You know, when the shows were over and I did all the backstage people that I brought backstage, you know, what did the artists want to do when the show was over and the backstage was over? They wanted to go party. And who uh, was I not to go to a party? Absolutely. And so I did that for almost nine years and was extremely successful. 
in my company, I won Best Promotion Man five times, which most people don't win it ever. I won it five times. And believe it or not, the guy who I replaced in the mailroom, who later became the vice president of Columbia Records, went to Capitol Records, and his name, classic name, John Faggot. Um, <laughs> uh, he, Johnny was crazy. I still talk to him today and uh, offered me a job at Capitol at this whole thing going on with CBS because I really didn't want to move to New York. I wanted to go back out to California. So I moved out to California, went to the round Capitol Records building, and I just dealt from being a director to a vice president with all the rock products that came out at Capitol Records, Bob Seger, Paul McCartney, Queen, Billy Squire, Doobie Brothers, you know, artists like that. And I, again, succeeded winning all kinds of awards, Billboard Best Promotion Person. And a new guy came in and they were going to pay me a lot of money. So they let me go because they didn't want to pay my contract. And then I started my own business. But the whole time... When I was at Capitol Records, I was on the road in St. Louis and got into a car accident with, you know, my promotion person in that area. We were at the airport. Some guy just plowed into us and I had a neck injury. And of course, that gave me an excuse to start shopping doctors before they checked on it for prescriptions. And I was just eating Vicodin like they were jelly beans. I mean, I was up to 20 Vicodins a day and I was working. Oh, wow. So I had gone through that stage, and then um, when my business, we moved up to Northern California, I worked out of my house, I got up at 6.30, made some phone calls around the country for the record company, and then I uh, went and rode my motorcycle, or rode my horse, or played golf, and then got divorced. So I moved back to Florida, and that was kind of a mistake. I moved to Clearwater, where my brother lived, and we got right back into the pain pills and work and the doctors and so on, kidney stones and all that good stuff. And then I went to Miami and I ran into someone that I went to literally high school with. We got together. She was an alcoholic. And at that time, I was uh, eating somers with codeine and I always smoked dope. And I thought that maybe if I could just get a couple shots of vodka down, I could get a better buzz. Basically, I was also fighting a bad back and I eventually had back surgery. But, you know, that was not an excuse because I never took the pain medicine as prescribed. I took the pain medicine under my own prescriptions. You know, instead of one every four hours, it was four and then one every hour. And I, mean, I just ate them like they were jelly beans. I had the ability to talk, which is crazy. But they worked in the opposite with me, pain pills. So we stayed together about 10, 11 years. And one day I took my dog. I was really struggling. I couldn't find any work that I liked because how do you get a job like I had and then go do some other stupid job. So I had gotten out of the music industry because my time had ended. And uh, one day I took my dog into the vet and I was convinced, I convinced my addictive brain that I was going to put her to sleep. And I don't know what happened. You know, I fell to my knees when I was home at my house by myself and I said, God, I can't take this. So I called my brother and my sister who had both been in recovery and I knew nothing about recovery. I just knew that after 47 years of doing drugs and then at the end, alcohol. And when I say alcohol at the end, I used to go to work. I'd stop at a liquor store and get a, a half pint of vodka. I chugged that down before I got out of the parking lot so I could throw the bottle on the trees in the medium strip. I'd go home and have three shots of vodka and then another three shots. In the meantime, I'm eating pills and smoking dope. Oh, man. So It's a miracle um, you are alive. I've been dead three times. Oof. 
I knew nothing about recovery. I thought I'd just walk in and they would help me get clean and that was it. I knew nothing. So my brother said, you got to raise some money because we have no insurance. So I called my best friend in Nashville and he gave me a couple thousand dollars. I thought I was going to die. I couldn't believe he said that. A couple other people gave me $500. My brother and sister helped out and off I went to recovery. 25 days, 125 meetings, no television, no phones, no computers, no reading material except what you get. I came out, went to my first meeting, hated it, but I knew I had to go to you know meeting a day. The following day, I went to a morning meeting. That wasn't too cool, but I kept going because I'm a morning person and I needed to get my medicine in the morning and I knew that. It turned out the meeting worked out well. About a year later, uh, my girlfriend and I split because it was over. I was actually going to Nashville to work in the business there. And uh, my daughter said, come out and you can pick up your grandkids. So I moved to California, although my daughter and I are very estranged. So I got fired as the grandpa. But I got known at the, the elementary school and I started volunteering. And after my granddaughter got out of kindergarten, the second year I went back to teach, I said to the kids, you can call me Mr. Shane or being a wise ass. I said, Grandpa. And the kids went nuts. <laughs> and I went to the principal. I says, if I overstep my bounds, and she says, no. So I have now going on four years of kids that I've taught. And when I take my granddaughter lunch, I have half the school walking over and saying, hi, Grandpa, including <laughs> the principal. <laughs> These are the kind of joys that I experienced here in Santa Barbara. I still have a struggle with my family and I can't do anything about it, but I have to accept it. But the reality is you've heard all the service and the stuff that I do. It's a gift. That's my high now. I get a rush from that. My education is a rush, you know, finding new horizons, helping a kid I mentor which I've never done before. Everything I do is literally like reliving again because before I had to force myself and I had to be, you know, I had to go to that before, during, and after. Well, you had to get fucked up before you went. You had to maintain yourself while you were there and pretend that you weren't high because you right. don't want everybody to think you were high. And then, of course, you rewarded yourself afterwards because you made it through. And that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. I don't do anything anymore. I exercise five days a week at the Y. I work at the golf course as a marshal for free and get free golf. So I play golf two to three times a week for free. Everything is free. And I love playing golf and I happen to be a really good golfer. Well, I don't want to say that. I'm a good golfer. <laughs> I have a very low handicap, but, uh, you know, at my age to accomplish what I've done, athletics has always come easy to me. But I meet beautiful people on the golf course. I'm accepted. I'm liked. My AA family here is off the charts. I have so many women that are just my friends instead of uh, objects of exercise. I got you. And, and it's a beautiful thing. And so I kind of have a goal to accomplish something, and I'm not sure what it is, but it has to do with giving back and helping others to not go through a 47 years what I did. Now, did I have fun? Absolutely. Did I make absolutely horrible financial decisions? Absolutely. Uh, am I kind of strapped financially now? Absolutely. But I won't go prostitute myself just to work to get money. I'd rather give and have less. And that makes me happy because it makes my life very simple and focused. So that's where I'm at now. I live in paradise, as I said before, Santa Barbara. I'm very content with myself. I have confidence that I'm going to continue doing this. I feel honored. I feel blessed. 
that uh, I've seen this new way of living because now I get to live three lives. You see, I get to live as a young adult who eventually gets introduced to drugs. Then I live a life of becoming married as a father and being an addict. And now I get to be a grandfather that's clean and sober. That's beautiful. So I've been really blessed to experience life from so many different atmospheres that I can at least say now there's a lot of things that I can do now that I never would have ever been able to do before. And that's how life is for me today. Beautiful. I love it. Thank you, Jeff. That is the story of sex, drugs, and rock and roll that (laughs) we're so familiar with, the 60s lifestyle of the free love and, you know, extraordinary amounts of drug use and experimenting. And to come out of it, a changed person with a new lease on life. Absolutely renewed lease on life. No question. If you Google thechannels.org, which is the newspaper of Santa Barbara City College, it's called thechannels.org. There's an article that someone wrote about me, which blew my mind. A kid came up to me and says, I need to write an article for the newspaper about you and your life. And the title is, He Created Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. So if you ever want to check it out, it's there. The channels? The channels.org. Or you go to Santa Barbara City College, the channels, that's their newspaper, and you look under feature stories, and that's where it is. You know, I don't want to take you too far back, but I do want to get a little bit out of you as far as what it was like. I don't know if you've seen the movie... I think Rockstar with Mark Wahlberg. There's a movie with Mark Wahlberg called Rockstar. And then there's the recent one, which was The Wolf of Wall Street. That was just the normal day in the life. Exactly. So tell me a little bit about what it was like. Give our listeners some stories about some of the people that you partied with and some of the stories that happened because we've all been there. All right. But there's those great stories, just a few of them, especially when you were dealing with all these amazing artists. Well, first of all, I don't want to name anybody. Okay. Because I don't think that's fair to them and their anonymity. Perfect. But I can tell you that there was a superstar who did a TV show and it was about a car. Gotcha. I'll leave it. (laughs) I'm with you. And we had a convention in Atlanta and they asked me to show him around man you talk about a chick magnet oh my god (laughs) and um I left him and I get a knock at my door and he says hey Jeff can I come in yeah what's up man anything else around the premises I found this lady sure so I give him some cocaine and that's that and about two hours later knock at the door hey it's so-and-so on in. He says, you won't believe this. I said, don't even go there. (laughs) So I said, listen, here's the rules of the game. I have never in my life gotten seconds from anyone, but since you're with ladies that are only 11s and 12s, no 10s, you have to send them to me after you're done. (laughs) This is what I'm talking about. (laughs) So this went on from Thursday night to Saturday night. Sunday, we both had to go. He had to go west, and I had to go south out of Atlanta. And he was spent. And for me, this is just another normal record convention where I almost killed myself. 
So Saturday night, I don't go to sleep. We take a limo to the airport. He can't even walk. So I uh, bump him up, and uh, he's off to his gate. And I get a wheelchair for him because he can't walk. Oh, my God. Gets there, and everybody knows who he is. I put him on the plane. I go home. Uh, it was Sunday, probably Tuesday or Wednesday. I get a phone call at home. Hey, man, it's so-and-so. <laughs> When's the next record convention? <laughs> Can I meet you there? I said, you going to be able to handle it? It wasn't one at the time, but that things like that. I mean, there were so many. I partied with someone that brought the Beatles to America in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. All right, all right. I partied with a lot of members of what we call now the classic rock bands. A couple of those bands are still touring. One of them's from England who still tours. And one of its members had a club in Miami. And if you read this particular person's book in the first three pages, he talks about a guy, his name. And they always used to come down to Miami on their way to the Bahamas. All right. I spent quite a few nights hanging out with them all night, which was pretty amazing. And what do those nights look like? Lots of booze, lots of cocaine, and solving the world. <laughs> Laughing. Uh, pretty amazing because they were actually very, very nice people when you had fucked up. <laughs> My record conventions were insane. You know, we were supposed to have a record convention. We had meetings. At night, we had an hour rest, and then it, from 6 to 7, we had cocktails. From 7 to 10 was dinner, which was usually interesting because the people that did cocaine moved it around their plate, and the people that drank ate everything on their plate. Then they were going to set up for artists in the main ballroom, play just for the record company, and there would be this exodus out of the ballroom. You never saw seven guys in a stall in a bathroom. It was amazing. <laughs> Or they'd get on the elevator, you know, oh, man, I'm going upstairs. And they'd come downstairs, and they were so friggin' happy. It was unbelievable. Oh, I'm ready to rock and roll. <laughs> I mean, I saw so many acts. One of my favorites was I saw uh, Jimmy Vaughn with the fabulous T-Birds, and then Stevie Ray Vaughn came out. And Jimmy played with Stevie, and then Jeff Beck came out, and they played for two hours, just jammed. And it, it was like Guitar Heroes forever, and nobody had ever seen that and never will see that. And those are the kind of shows that they played for us in a ballroom. When it was over, you couldn't be a wimp and go to sleep at 11, 12. You had meetings at 9. So they had suites, and the suites had free booze. Unlimited free booze. Oh, but for me, it was unlimited cocaine. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking that. I'm going, the booze is going to put me to sleep. No, no, I ain't going to do no fucking booze. So I was at that point where I was praying that everybody would quit because the pile would be left for me. I never quit. So I would literally go from the suite to my room and get myself to the point where I couldn't sit anymore. Then I would play games in the hallways, how many I could do walking to the elevator, how many I could do in between floors, how many I could do walking up the staircase because the elevators didn't have any cameras or anything. And then by the time I got to the suite, probably stay there 15, 20 minutes, maybe 30. And now my brain said, you're coming down. So now I leave the suite. I go back to, by the way, we're doing it in the suite. Of course. So I go back to my room. I bang myself up, do the same thing. 
And this would go on till three, four o'clock in the morning that we have a, what we called a, you know, a meeting. And a lot of times I had to do a presentation. So I had to just get wired at eight o'clock in the morning to do this fucking presentation, which yeah. I always won awards for, by the way, which that's how crazy it was for being, doing such a good job. So everybody would quit at um, three, four o'clock. And I'm just sitting there thinking, this is spectacular. I got the whole pile. But the whole time I have 10 milligram Valium. So I'm going to go to sleep when I want to go to sleep. Oh, my God. So when I was finally done, I would go to my room and I would take 30 milligrams of Valium. And I'd smoke a joint. And then all of a sudden I'd say to myself, God damn, I feel good now. So now I don't want to go to sleep. So I would do something intelligent like, well, I'll do a few bumps before I go to sleep. <laughs> that always made a lot of sense. I always wondered about that one. That was one of my ingenious moments. And sometimes I didn't go to sleep. Sometimes I just, and I didn't, nobody else was awake. So I go down the lobby and talk to somebody. I just walk around. Next morning, wouldn't eat breakfast, go to the, the meeting, do my presentation. And everybody think, man, that was fabulous. If they only knew where I was at, it was unbelievable. Unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Stop yeah, I do that for days. I would do that for sometimes two days, three days at a time. I can tell you times when I walked through hallways absolutely totaled on cocaine and thought, I can't believe that everybody else in the world isn't as high and as happy as I am. I thought uh, about it the other day and I thought, boy, you talk about insanity. Yeah. That's insanity. And I mean, everything I did was really borderline insanity everything i did was in excess and uh certainly i didn't think of any repercussions i just thought of doing it i did a tremendous amount of cocaine when i first moved to costa rica and listening to your stories i'd forgotten just how bad it was and how mm. delusional i was about the drug and how extraordinary I became when I was using it. And that same thought of, I can't believe I've never done this. It took me so long to discover it, number one. I can't believe not everybody's doing it. As right. a matter of fact, I used to think that other people were doing it, but they just weren't talking about it. Oh, I never thought that. I didn't give a shit. I only cared <laughs> that I was doing it. And since I came from Miami and I knew I had the best, I didn't give a shit. I can't tell you how many times I turned it down because it was terrible. The other people had, and I didn't want to be a snob, but I wasn't going to put that shit in my nose. Oh, wow. So I just remember that I thought that when I got high in cocaine, first of all, I couldn't stop. But once I got high, I had no fear. Nothing made me fear. No. I mean, I could do my job. I could drive. I could do this. I loved having sex. I never wanted it to end. It was never any compassion or passion. It was just a physical exercise to see how hard I could go until I said, okay, I had enough. I'm going to sleep. You know, it wasn't very much compassion involved in that. It was just a physical exercise. And of course, being in my position, I don't remember how many women I had. I do know that I had a woman in every city with cocaine waiting for me. Oh, that's the dream of every cocaine drug addict. That is absolutely the dream. You were living it for all of us. I lived the dream. I promise you, I lived the dream. Yeah. And for how many years? I did that with the, that amount of cocaine for about 12 or 13 years. That's just unbelievable. It's just a miracle that you're alive. Now, you did mention in your story that you'd OD'd a few times, right? Well, one time I tried to OD because I didn't want to go into the army. I had the sleeping pills set, and I told the guy at the draft board since he told me I was a Jew with my phony notes for the second time 
So he asked me, what am I going to do? I'm going to get you inducted. I looked him square in the eye. I said, I'm going to go home and commit suicide because I'm not running from my country. I went to a friend's house and I lined them up on the table and I ate them. And I waited about 15 minutes so that I could go to my shrink's office in my mind and drop dead in his waiting room. And nothing happened, which is bizarre. I actually walked to the emergency room. Nothing and happened. No, and then I remember getting wired up with all the tubes down my throat and in my arm and in my nose, fighting everybody in the emergency room, telling them it's none of your fucking business. Leave me the hell alone. And then I kept pulling the intravenous out when I was in my room. I was not a good boy. No. And a couple of times I did too much drugs and I passed out. I wasn't sure I was going to wake up. Now, is this, for example, when I used to do too much blow, I used to just take... Uh, either Valium or uh, Tylenol PMs as smoke tons and tons of weed as much as I could and drink at the same time to try and go to sleep. Is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, I couldn't fall asleep. So I took another Valium. I couldn't fall asleep. I took another Valium. And then a couple of times people would say to me, told me we weren't sure if you were breathing. We were going to call 911. Again, every day was living on the edge. I wanted to see how far I could push myself. And what was that final straw that finally you said, that's it, I'm done? What was the story of your bottom, your rock hard bottom, where you said, that's it, I'm done here? I got to yeah. I, I got to I had smoked cigarettes when I was younger and just cold turkey, three packs a day. I okay. smoked about five years in my early 20s. Uh-huh. With the cocaine, it got to the point where the following couple of days, I was so dehydrated that I had so much stomach problems. So one day I said, that's it, I'm done. No rehab, nothing, I quit. After, you know, literally doing it every day and lots of it. So I'm pretty disciplined. I was an athlete. I understand what it is to be disciplined. We have a saying, when you're done, you're done. And when you're not, go back out. But the door is always open, no matter how many times you come back. And once I went into recovery, I knew that either you do this. Someone said something to me that really made the most sense. They said to us, this is the only thing in your life that you're going to do that 99% is a failure. And that's always resonated with me. So this is either 100% or nothing because I know for a fact. Someone said, what would you do if you were going to go out? I said, I want a bag of the best weed. I want a bottle of Grey Goose. I want a bottle of Quaaludes and Percocets. And I want a giant bag of cocaine and then I'll go out because I don't want to do one of anything because I'll just get angry. And when, I've had knee surgery here and I had pain pills and it was unbelievable how my mind changed. I actually flushed. I don't know. I think I got 60 Percocet after rehab. After the first day, I think I flushed 55 of them down the toilet. Awesome. I made a decision that this is I already thought, OK, I could get up from two every four hours to three every four hours. I'm out here on my own. I can eat them every hour. I'm driving around a week after having knee replacement and it's my right knee. I have no pain. I decided I was going to be the first one to recover that quickly. So I saw all the signs of throwing everything away, just throwing everything away. And I had to make a decision. So for me, when I went to rehab, after I told everybody who I got high with and realized nobody gave a shit in there, because um, you're fighting for your identity and who you are and whatever, 
by the time I got out, I knew that it was going to be up to me and only me what I get out of this. Was I that strong and that convinced forever? I doubt it. You know, I don't think anybody comes out of recovery not believing, I hope, that something good will come from it. But in the end, I don't think you have the knowledge or the commitment yet to know if you're going to stay clean. But as I kept going to meetings and starting to feel this amazing difference and thinking, you know, do I really want to go back to where I was? Do I want to give this up because there's something going on that I can't explain that's really good? And I think I'm just going to stay with it. So as you stay with it for each day and hour and month and six months and a year, as you know, after a year, after your second year, I can't tell you that I don't dream. I dream a lot at night. and Every one of my dreams has drugs in it. Every one of them all the time. Really? Even today? Even today. Every single one. How can I dream about something when everything I did had drugs in them? Yeah, Whatever the situation was, even though it's a situation probably subconsciously from today, there's drugs in there. Right. Not really alcohol. So I've had my eyes opened up. I have a limited time on earth. I'd like to have more, but I don't. So I just figured that the smartest thing I can do is learn the most I can, give back the most I can, and enjoy the fact that I'm clean and sober. I love it, man. That is absolutely beautiful. That's my life today. Uh, I know. That's exactly how I feel. I couldn't have said it better myself. And I know when we met, I identified so much with your energy and with your story and your passion for recovery. Uh, They say if you spot it, you got it. Right. And well, we clicked. I knew that you and I clicked, and we probably talked for a grand total of two to three minutes. Then we started to talk for a few more minutes. Everybody saying, "Come on, oh, you got to go, you got to go." <laughs> but I knew that you put it great—the energy and compassion to continue and to live this kind of life. And what you're doing now, you would have never done. No, no, no. Oh. You never would have done, and you're not making a zillion dollars doing this. I'm making. Zero dollars right I now. Know. That's fantastic. <laughs> okay. It's amazing the things we do for free now. Yeah. Well, I just be very important, you know. I would have charged you a lot of money. I don't know what for. <laughs> but I guess my only thing left on this earth is to have a, a better relationship with my daughter. And someday they'll allow me to take the kids by myself so I can establish a relationship because I'm the only family in town. So that's probably the most difficult thing for me. And it's really in my daughter's hands. I'm very close to my son-in-law and we're working on it together. I don't think he realized how bad it was. We've had some conversations and I don't want to put him in the middle, but they've come about where I told them what was going on. My grandson and I, I love my grandson. We get along great. He's a fabulous athlete. I just am blown away. And my granddaughter acts like my daughter. is very distant, very unappreciative. And if she so chooses to act that way, that's her choice. I can't do anything about it. I have to accept it and hope that someday she'll see the things I do and actually one day ask me how I am. She never even asked me how I am. There's one thing I've learned in this program is that expect a miracle. Expect a miracle. And if I'm doing the next right thing, 
If I am doing God's work, which is what we're doing right now, which is what you do on a regular basis, is what I do. We're doing God's work. We're carrying the message to the addict that still suffers. We're doing our job. God delivers miracles beyond our wildest dreams, and he continues to do so. So if it's in the cards, it will happen. For me, I live in 24 hours, and if something does happen, great, but I don't plan on it. Absolutely. I I can't live that kind of life anymore. And if the miracle comes, then I'll be the first one and the most thankful. But in the end, I can only control the 24 hours of today, and that's how I live. Beautiful. All right, Jeff. Well, listen, let's close up the show. And the way I like to close it is for the newcomer. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you five questions about your early recovery, and you're going to respond with inspiring and insightful answers you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? Go. Love this. Excellent. So, Jeff, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Me. Perfect. (laughs) Question number two. (laughs) At what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? I don't know if there was really one moment. I had a buildup once I was in my first year. And towards the end, every time I kept hearing, when you're done, you're done. And when you're not, you're not. And I suddenly, before I started doing a lot of service, I started to realize that it was strictly in my hands. And I can't get anybody sober, but in our organization, we can help someone stay sober. So I knew my spiritual awakening was that, again, it was up to me to decide if I was really honestly committed to this for the rest of my life. And that's when I first became spiritually aware that I had in my hands the ability to make this work. I love it, man. Beautiful. And Jeff, do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early recovery? World's Greatest Miracle. World's Greatest Miracle. Yeah. I got the book in recovery. It's a 100-page paperback book. It's by an author who's I don't have it handy. Uh, Hold on. Let me run upstairs. I actually printed out some pages. Uh, Here it is. It's called The Greatest Miracle in the World. And the author? Og O.G. Mandino. M-A-N-D-I-N-O. Perfect. It's going to be listed in the show notes. I love it. Amazing. It's a brand new book. No one's ever brought it up. But it's an old book. Good. Maybe I should read it. (laughs) It could blow your mind. All right. Beautiful. And... What is the best suggestion you have ever received? When I went to recovery, they called it toothbrush therapy. Toothbrush therapy. Reach out to another alcoholic every day, go to a meeting, and be consistent with your program. For me, it's I read one day at a time just for today. In a Buddhist book, I read the prayer of St. Francis, the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer. Thank you for giving me, taking me, and leaving me. I read the acceptance prayer. I say the serenity prayer. Then I have some sayings like the best things in life aren't things. Be positive. Anger is reaction to the present. Fear is response to the future. 
resentments of reliving the past. I made these on index cards and uh, love unconditionally. I took out of this chapter. Let me see if I have it. I also read it. Count your blessings. Proclaim your rarity. Go another mile. Use wisely your power of choice and do all things with love. Beautiful. That came out of the chapter in Mundino. And I do these things every morning. I come down and I journal my feelings. In other words, acceptance, accepted, anger, appreciated, blessed, calm, caring, consistent, considerate. I'm just, you know, faith, envy, encourage, grateful, gratitude, a hope, humble, uh, pain, pleasure, patience, sad, safe, successful, spiritual, satisfied, thankful, thoughtful, hopeful, thankful, thoughtful, trust, and truthful, tired. I identify feelings that I hope to experience during the course of the day. And then I write a gratitude list. Oh, and then you write a letter to God in the afternoon or evening before I go to sleep. I stayed over the feelings I experienced, I thought, during the day. I finish my gratitude list and I do a recap of my day with a letter to God on what's gone on, what I felt, where I'm at now. And I do that every day. I've done that every day since recovery. So to me, it's a program of consistency. It's a program of honesty. It's a program of repetition because we never learn anything without repetition. That's why we read the same book and the same stuff. That's what I do every day. And the, another book I would recommend from the place in Minnesota, it's what's the big place in Minnesota that's been there forever before one day at a time is their own book. Is it Hazelton? Right, Hazelton. That one day at a time is fabulous. They got tons of literature. Right. So, you know, I just, again, I'm a morning person. I do a lot of stuff in the morning and I do a wrap up in the evening and that keeps me connected. I, you know, I try and meditate in the morning or meditate at the meeting and I do a little breathing at night and um, I do a lot of reading. It. I read books to get away. I don't read books for knowledge or something like that. I read books to enjoy them and, and that's what I do. Beautiful. That's how I go to sleep now. Spectacular. I don't have to medicate myself to go to sleep anymore. No, none of us do. And I remember when I was early in recovery, and for whatever reason, once I was done, I was done. I was terrified of drugs when I came into Narcotics Anonymous. That's where I got clean initially. And I was terrified of drugs, so I wouldn't take anything once I made the commitment to stop. And I remember guys used to come in and go, man, you know, I can't sleep, you know, oh, and I can't just, you know, all that stuff. And they used to whine about it. And I remember the old timers would say, well, then stay awake. And they would look at the guy like with bewilderness and go, well, what do you mean? Well, if you can't sleep, then just stay awake. Eventually, your body will shut down. Right. All right. I had about 10 days in recovery where I couldn't sleep and I started to go crazy. I had the picture show in my head, the picture show of the past, the picture show of the future, the picture show of the moment. I couldn't shut my brain off. And then one night I went to sleep and I thought, Jesus Christ, that was nice. And even as a kid, I had this enormous fear of going to sleep because 
When I was growing up, I still wound up, I'd go to sleep and I couldn't fall asleep for an hour. And I always had that toss and turn and I couldn't fall asleep. And how do people fall asleep immediately? It's like, God, that's crazy. How do they do that? And I had this fear. So I said, well, I'm not laying in bed and tossing and turning. I'm going to medicate myself. That's it. I'm going to medicate myself. So that was one of my biggest fears. How the hell am I ever going to sleep? And uh, that's a great piece of information. So you just keep going until your body says, I'm not staying awake anymore. It's funny. It was the most remedial thing I'd ever heard, but it made so much sense. I'm like, yeah, like eventually you're just not going to be able to stay awake. Duh. <laughs> Duh. You know, that's what's going to happen, bro. It's going to shut down. So many light bulb moments in early recovery. <laughs> Did I get to all five? Or we got one more. I can't oh, yeah, remember. No, we got one more. Okay. okay. So, Jeff, if you could give a newcomer only one suggestion, what would it be? Hmm, that's tough. Be honest with yourself. But yeah. you can't be honest with others unless you get honest with yourself first. You can't help others until you help yourself. Beautiful. That is absolutely fantastic. Jeff, great suggestions. And before we say goodbye, let me ask you one more question. What is your favorite meeting that you attend and where is that group located? My favorite meeting is in Montecito, California, which is uh, Santa Barbara. And I attend it in the mornings at 7.30. It's seven days a week. I love the fact that you can go to the same meeting seven days a week. I like the consistency. I like the repetition. And I like the recovery in this room because nobody whines. Everybody talks about recovery and what's important. What's the name of the group? 83 to 87 at the All Saints Church. Perfect. I love it. All right. We have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida, my friend. And, oh, you've been an absolute joy. This has been an incredible honor to be on this cast. And thank you so much for the opportunity to be involved in some form of recovery, okay? Absolutely, brother. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.